Since the subject of our sermon this evening is marriage, it is well for us to read first that historical account in Genesis chapter 2, wherein we read that God established that relationship. Genesis 2, 15 to 25. This is the word of God. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Then we read from the New Testament, Paul's writing about this same subject. From Ephesians chapter 5, we're going to begin at verse 22 and read through verse 32. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. 
However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, the last time we looked at the Apostle Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, we heard him stress the importance of every believer's walk of life. It needs to be sanctified, that is, holy. Not under the control of sin and evil, but under the control of the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ. He summarized that with these words of chapter 5, verse 21. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now that seems at first to be a rather strange way to make his point. I say that because he seems to be saying that Jesus Christ has surrendered his authority to control your Christian life to others. In this case, to the church. But that is not the case at all. What he means to say is that just as Christ submitted to the Father's will, you need to submit to him. But the question still remains, how does submitting to other Christians demonstrate reverence for Christ? This way. Jesus has not gathered to himself a discreet bunch of individuals. He has saved a church, a body that has a head himself. And he rules, directs, and blesses that body as one, made up of many members, but all subject to his will and control. Saying that brings to mind a rather all-pervasive mindset that has apparently found residence in the area of human personality. I speak of a radical shift that has taken place in recent decades in answer to the question, what is the ground of human life by which a person may build his existence and behavior. Oh, granted that the body comes about through natural means, but what of the soul? From whence does that exist, and to what is it responsible? Formerly, most people found the answer in some kind of deity or existence outside the human individual. Call it religion. And the societies of people historically have gathered corporately around a common understanding of what that upper power has determined. And however that determination has been revealed to them. In any case, the common denominator of human existence has been submission to that 
something outside and above all us mere mortals. What anyone thinks in his own mind ought to be and what ought not to be becomes a moving target, subject not merely to the individual's desires and inclinations, but rather to the will of the God or gods currently in vogue. You could call it the bondage of the human will, if you want. But nevertheless, it cannot be escaped. And all that is so with the result that questions of human identity, and especially human moral behavior, are not left to the whims of each and every person, but are bound unchangeably by the control or forces outside of each human being. You get it? Today, however, it is notable that more and more academics are willing to ascribe psychology and even theology as belonging to a radical different direction. One Reformed Christian thinker, an Orthodox Presbyterian as a matter of fact, Grove City College Professor Carl R. Truman has produced a striking book entitled The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. That book captures this remarkable change of course that is worldwide, most notably. You could summarize Dr. Truman's findings as documenting the blossoming of expressive individualism. Huge, bankrupt humanism. Such a development is clearly revolutionary. You should know about it, to say the least. For now, Human beings apparently don't need to be concerned anymore with any god or gods that there might be thought to exist. And certainly not also with the generalized viewpoints of anyone's parents, neighborhoods, or societies. Not to mention governments. When it comes to finding your own identity, purpose, and goal. Be yourself is the motto. And do your own thing without recourse outside of yourself. And whatever, do not submit to anyone or anything that would presume to control and regulate your own self. But you know this is coming. But the Apostle Paul, perhaps anticipating what has evolved 
in the thinking of our day advises the believers in Ephesus 2,000 years ago to find their existence in the opposite direction from that taken by what Dr. Truman is calling the modern soul. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul calls upon believers to, quote, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. And he summarizes that wise walk in the last verse of the text that we considered last time, a walk of submission. All of you, be subject to one another. Yes, submission, rather than expression of whatever desire or course of behavior you might personally prefer. You are a human being created by God and responsible before him, and we read about that in Genesis 2, to think his thoughts after him, to believe in him, and to direct your behavior according to the duty he requires of you. Therefore, that special tree in the Garden of Eden. The sacred writer, Paul, summarizes his discourse in these last words of that, our recent text, verse 21. Submitting, submitting to one another out of reverence to Christ. Do you see what's going on here? Do you see the progression? You owe submission to God, your creator, through Jesus, your redeemer, who himself submitted to the will of his Father. Down through the church that expresses its submission to God by caring for one another. Your self-identity, contrary to what the professor has brought to our attention in his book, is in submission to God, and that submission is evidenced in your relationships all across the board, your relationships with others in a reciprocal way. And that fact brings the sacred writer to discuss next one particular relationship that is entered into by the vast majority of human persons. For there you will find submission personified in a relationship which God has ordained. Two human beings, one male and one female, joined in a lasting union and solemnized by voluntary vows. But the characteristic of submission to others, in this case, submission to other human beings, especially believers, is what draws the apostles' attention to the most intimate and, formerly at least, widespread of relationships on earth, marriage. And it is marriage that is the theme of our text. Even if you're not married, have never been married, and never become married, it doesn't mean that you're out of this sermon entirely. You need to know these things. 
And Paul Nardacolon talks about it in his letter to Corinth, his letter to Colossae, and his letter to Ephesians. He even says something of the same thing in all those three passages. And it is this. Human marriage is of God's design and displays by the mutual submissive relationship of wife and husband. Submission to him. That's our theme. Now to expose it, I'll say this. Human marriage is indeed of God's design. It is not, as more frequently evidenced today in modern behavior, obsolete, old-fashioned, unnecessary, and tedious. The residue of a rigid moral system that doesn't hold together anymore. It is the most basic and foundational institution of human relationships, related in that very second chapter of the book of the Bible, the first book of the Bible, in that historical account that we recited once more earlier. That passage is quite familiar to you, I'm sure. But I still wonder whether you have thought about it beyond merely grasping the details set forth in that creative account. Do you realize the implications regarding human marriage that are embedded in that Genesis historical record? Let me summarize them briefly. Earlier in chapter 2, Moses, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tells us that God created multitudes of animals called in the Hebrew language nephesh hayah, living souls, or living creatures. They were not simply alive like the plants of the ground, and when they expired, they ceased to be alive. Their bodies, which constituted the entirety of what they were, returned to the earth from which they had been made. They did not have souls that continued to live after death. They all did indeed mate and produce offspring without experiencing anything resembling marriage. Still, that was good, as the sacred account says, and God calls it good. But we read that when God created a man, a human male, in a way quite different from his creation of the animals, this human, this male human, became also, like the animals, a nephesh ayah. The Bible says so. When he came into existence, he became a nephesh, a living soul. But he did not find his existence, like the animals did, purely from procreation. He found his existence from direct and distinct creation by God from the dust of the ground. He came into being because the Bible says God breathed into his nostrils the breath 
The Hebrew word used is ruach, spirit of life. This was no ordinary nephishayal. This was a new and special soulish creature who possessed what we could call a donum aditum, whose existence was brought about by God's breathing into his nostrils the breath, the spirit of life. Now this Nefesh has a name, an identity. He is not Fido or Spot. He is Adam, the man, a living creature possessing a human spirit made after God's image. Thus God communicated with him and gave him specific commands. Among those was the provision of that certain tree that it's not to be eaten. Then God determined it is not good that Adam, the man, should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So God built that's the exact meaning of the Hebrew verb. He built a woman. Isha. Out of the man, Ish. And brought her to the man. As a result, we get a song from Adam. Read verse 23 again. This is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called Isha, because she was taken out of Ish. Something to sing about. This was marriage. Marriage, now Paul writes to the Ephesians, consists fundamentally of mutual submission. When one man and one woman make mutual vows to live together in mutual submission and that is publicly ratified and certified before witnesses, what do you get? You get marriage. Other than that, you may have two people, both of which are not exactly that, one born a male human person and the other born a female human person, but you don't have a marriage not without those vows, and not without that intention. Not by biblical definition, that is. That's why the kind of personhood that has newly crept into the psychology and the sociology of our modern time is so abhorrent to anyone committed to following the definition of marriage outlined by God's word, the Bible. You get other relationships of people who say they're in favor of gender transference, homosexuality, adultery, promiscuity, and whatever further aberrations may yet find residence in the modern self. None of those successfully erase or even amend God's definition of marriage. They may 
they indeed will satisfy the desire or the desires of the human person, but they never will serve to fulfill that person's chief identity, which is, according to the Westminster Shorter Catechism, is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Marriage, not copulation, will serve there. Now notice what the apostle does in his letter to the Ephesians. Now we're getting close to what I want you to take home with you tonight, the main theme of this text. I know there are many other sermons that could be preached from this text, probably a half a dozen. But I'm just picking one particular identification. Because right after he says in verse 21, right before our text, that the way believers ought to direct their lives is by submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, is that he turns to this whole matter of marriage. That's what he does. Human marriage. And that's the point of application I want to make tonight. Paul wants the Ephesians and you to understand that the first area of human relationship in which submission is to be seen as ruling from above, from God, and not from your modern self, is marriage. He will go on to speak about family relationships that include submission, employment relationship that includes submission in further texts in this chapter, and even governmental relationships. But first and foremost, he wants to draw his reader's attention to marriage. And there, first and foremost, the concept of submission must come to light. The thing is, however, and here is where I want to make the point clear, I think I'm right here, you judge. Just because he speaks initially to the wife when it comes to submission, he doesn't mean to say that in a marriage, one of the two in that marriage, only the woman, is the person who will need to submit. I'm afraid, however, that that exactly is a misrepresentation that has championed many for much of human history. A wife submits to the husband, and he rules her. If you take it that way and say no more, I think you haven't listened to God's word. You haven't listened to all of it. I ask you, which of these two scenarios is descriptive of submission? To follow your husband or to die for your wife? The answer, of course, is they both do. That's exactly what the Bible says in this text. And I want all of you to go home tonight with that parallel ringing in the ears of your heart and mind. Now here's where we want to read verses 22 to 24 again. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, also wives should submit in everything 
to their husbands. The wife is to submit or to be subject to her husband. Why? <laughs> because it is according to the will of God. It's fitting because God says so. Not that it is a good idea or because the husbands might like it to be that way, but because God wants it that way. Christ is the head of the church, and thus the church submits to Christ. He puts it this way, Jesus said, If you love me, keep my commandments. Submit to me. Wives, following that example, are to submit to the headship, the leadership of their husbands. Why? Because God says so here in the Bible. And godly biblical marriage vows ought not alter that promise, I think, that the wife promises to obey this husband. That's been uh, edited and amended in many marriage ceremonies. I know that such often, perhaps, even usually takes place and some, and some other verb replaces obey. But it's wrong to do that. Obey is Paul's and the Holy Spirit's verb. It's God's verb describing the submission that he wants wives to give to their husbands. But if I were to say amen and send you home now, that would be bad. Because there are two scenarios in this text. Aren't there? It is not only the wife that Paul wants to be understanding of how human submission works itself out in a marriage. Our text goes on to say in verses 25 through 32, and we're not going to really try to preach on that because our time is up. And we won't read it again. But it's, what it's saying is that the husband also has a role expressing submission. In his case, the verb chosen is not obey. You know what the verb is? Love. Oh, you might say, I get it. The wife has to obey the husband, but all the husband has to do is fall in love with her. Wrong. Love is defined elsewhere in the Bible. It is not a noun. It is a verb. It describes what he does for her. And what is that? Well, you say, Oh, he provides for her. He brings home the bacon. Yes, true. And God provides for his creature man. But Paul's description of how love works itself out in a marriage is otherwise defined. Listen to verses 25 and 26. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Gave himself up for her. That was his love. Now, if that's not submission, you tell me what submission is. So husbands, love your wives that way. 
die for her if necessary. It was necessary for Christ to die for you if you were to be saved. You husbands, love your wives submitting to them that way. It is in this letter to Ephesus that the Apostle Paul draws the analogy between marriage and the relationship that exists between Christ and his church. And it is hard sometimes to understand how husbands and wives ought to behave towards each other. Then what we have to do is remember God's biblical picture. We know how Christ, the husband, has dealt with the church, his bride. And we know how that church ought to act, therefore, towards him. Understanding the one we can grasp the other. But there is one difference. The wife's being put under the husband does not grow out of a natural subordination in the sense that she is an inferior creature. Neither does it grow out of a spiritual subordination as though she were of less value in God's sight. It grows rather of a divinely ordained relationship in which there is a head and a body. A marriage is a one flesh relationship, one organism going one direction and one direction only. When it is otherwise, you have two people cohabiting, perhaps, but you don't have a marriage. In actual fact, it is just as wrong a thing for a wife to be the head of the marriage as it would be for the church to seek to rule over Jesus Christ. Thus, Paul, when he speaks of the submission of the wife to the husband, the farthest thing from his mind is a helpless chattel, mercilessly at the beck and call of her Lord and Master. The thought is rather of husband and wife forming together one flesh, each fulfilling a proper and happy role. The man incomplete without the woman, and the woman the complement of her husband. It is the harmonious and perfect functioning of the marriage body, the head giving direction for the body, and the body in response producing a beautiful result. Actually, the word that the apostle uses here to describe the wife's role, submit, isn't quite the nasty, barbed word we might take it to be at first glance. Actually, it means to be placed under and carries the notion of support, not that of being dominated, like legs beneath a table. They may be placed underneath but they sure are not unimportant. In fact, the table can't serve us easily without them. Any husband who has been given a minimal understanding of this situation will therefore be very appreciative of what his wife means to him. Thus he will love her, recognizing how much he needs her, and he will be very sensitive to her in her supporting role. He will recognize that God has said that it is not good for him to be alone. So he invented marriage.
for Adam. Finally, let me say this. It is rather striking that here wives, did you notice, are not commanded to love their husbands. Isn't that amazing? Perhaps God takes note that there is not so much danger of the wife failing in this respect as there is of the husband failing in his. At any rate, husbands are to love their wives. They've got to take initiative. If they don't, then they're not following the example set by Jesus who showed them what it means to do love. We know this Love by this, that he laid down his life for us. There is love's definition. Giving your life for your wife, you are loving her and sparing nothing for her. Welfare is you being her lover. So then just as Paul begins his word to the two married ones with a command to the wife, to her, he ends with this word in verse 33. Let the wife see that she respects her husband. And I believe the wedding vow could biblically be couched using that verb. Amen.